This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the blog to watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is Mr. Crispin Jones of Mr. Jones Watches. Crispin, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Ariel. Absolutely. So I am trying to reminisce about the time several years ago now where I visited your shop in London. Mm -hmm. um, And we met for the first time and we had, you know, chatted and I had seen a number of your watches and things like that. What year was that now? That must have been, was that like 17, 16? I think it might even have been earlier. I think I would like to say like 13 or 14 because actually that like that was one of the um one of the more significant well certainly more significant visits we ever had and certainly the most significant conversation I ever had with anyone outside the company because what was really interesting for me was you came in and you know if you run a small company you're surrounded by people you're constantly encountering people who say you know what you should do is this, right? And, the, you know, they have dumb ideas for how you should be running your company. But, <laughs> but, but, like, but genuinely, you came in and you said, what's really odd about your watches is they're really bold and distinctive, but they're quite small. And I was kind of like, hmm, interesting. I never really thought of it like that. And you were saying, why don't you make them bigger? And actually, that, that had a really, you know, completely tangible impact. We released like an XL what we call an XL version. I mean, in the world of watches, it's not that XL, it's 45 millimeter case. Right. Um, but we did make a conscious decision, like over the years, we've we slightly scaled up the size of the glass on our on our main case. So it went from 28.5 to 32 millimeters, which sounds really like, you know, two and a bit millimeters. It, it, it's not very significant in the grand scheme of things. But actually in terms of the the real estate and the the kind of the impact of the design, it, it does shift a lot. But yeah, there, it was like genuinely, I, I tell people that quite often that, you know, for all the people out there like, you know, full of bad advice for how to run a company, occasionally someone does come along with good advice. Oh, now I'm so curious. What was some of the bad advice? Um, but Well, always like people want us to do dog watches. They're like, and that was why we did a, a silly April Fool's thing where we made a watch for dogs. But what they mean is like, why don't you, put a picture of a dog on the watch because you know because they know we have a an office dog stanley who may bark in the background but you know it's just like that so misses the point of what you're trying to do exactly exactly i mean quite often people people come along and say ah you make watches not knowing the kind of watches that i do i will show them them and they'll say "Mm, do you make more like traditional looking watches i'm kind of like "Mm, there's quite a lot of companies out there already who do that so no that's not really our thing you know it's it's that it's that sort of level of advice where you're just like (laughs) you're a million miles away from from what we do well i want to sort of talk a little bit about mr jones watches and 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 you just offer some context because mr jones watches is unlike any other brand uh, that I have uh, had someone on the show from. It's a very distinctive kind of company. And it's not really a lot like many of other today's watchmakers. It is one of the rare, um, I, 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 w- I, say, I say humble in the sense that it's not, you're not trying to be a luxury company, but you're, mm-hmm. just, a, you're just trying to make art watches. Mm-hmm. Legible, but they're fun. They're based upon your aesthetic as an artist. You're, you're making wearable art for mm-hmm. the common person to wear at a few hundred dollars as opposed to a few thousand or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands. Mm-hmm. You don't seem to take too much attention 
to what goes on in that industry. You, of course, probably know what's going on, but you're not like copying or influenced by some watch many times the price. You're, you're in your own lane, proudly so. And, you know, there's a lot to be said of that. You know, in the creative space, you're a creative person. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm on the periphery of being a creative person. I don't know what to call myself. But there's two schools of thought, right? There's this sort of hyper tunnel vision where you have your own vision and you do your own thing. Or you try to please the crowd by doing what's popular and you do like a slight variation or just a complete copy of something else which has proven popular. And and you have decidedly chosen the first one. I'd like to think I have as well to some degree. But would you agree, disagree with that assessment? Absolutely. I think that was a, a fair summary of the watch industry in a nutshell. But I, find, I think the watch industry is already unusual industry because it is so conservative. And like... You're right. We, we're kind of aware of what goes on in the world of, you know, sort of mainstream, I'd like to say, watches, but we're really not part of that. And I wouldn't say, you know, our, our benchmark brands are not other watch companies so much as kind of clothing or accessories companies. Um, but, but I just find it extraordinary that there are some great companies out there like Rolex who make a beautiful product, who trade on their heritage, you know, fantastic, but they've got such strong heritage. But then there's all of these uh, sort of leech companies who just copy them and are satisfied doing that. And I just always found that bizarre. I just think, why not make something of your own, you know, no matter if, if only a tiny fraction of people like it, at least it's your thing rather than making a sort of pastiche of a Rolex Submariner. But, but the pastiche is what artists love to hate but know they need because you know, still most artists are starving. You know, the entrepreneurial artist that makes money doing their craft during their lifetime is still the exception to the norm. I mean, am I, am I, am I out of touch or is that still true? I mean, I don't know. Like I would say technology has facilitated a lot more people making a sort of lower level of income, but a steady income from their creative practice. I think if you went to pre-internet, so you went back to the 1990s, then you were either completely starving as an artist or you were making millions of, you know, there was really no mid-ground. Right. It was right. like you either were super successful or you were nobody. Now I would say there's much more scope for, you know, kind of Kickstarter-style projects for for people making, sort of being more entrepreneurial with their work and, and getting it out there in a format that people are prepared to buy. I think, yeah, I think that's definitely happening now. So let's go back to the origin because right now this year you're celebrating the 15th year and I want to talk about some of my first I guess, uh, moments with the brand, but talk about, you know, what was your education or what was your business before? Mm. How did you stumble upon making a watch brand and what has allowed it to be so satisfying for you that you've maintained it over, you know, a decade and a half? Okay. Quite a lot of questions in there. Um, I'll try to keep it brief. Um, like my background, so I have an undergraduate degree in fine art. I specialized in sculpture. So, Sculpture not meaning stone carving, but meaning more three-dimensional artworks. Um, I, a couple of years after I graduated from the undergraduate course, I did a master's at the Royal College of Art in a course that was called Interaction Design. And Interaction Design was really about any sort of creative use of technology. So the years I studied there was 1998 to 2000. It's really the dawn of like mass adoption of the internet, mass adoption of telephones, mobile telephones, and, and not really mobile phones as we think of them now, but just mobile telecommunications. Um, and on that course, they had 
because it was such a new field, they had quite a diverse um, set of students on there. So a lot of people came from product design backgrounds or graphic design. Um, and there were a handful of people who came from fine art. And I really struggled to find what was my space in, in that world, because a lot of them were were focused on making sort of utopian, beautiful piece of technology and went on to work for Apple or big mobile phone companies or, you know, went into that world. I was always much more drawn to a sort of dystopian vision of technology and, and, and seeing technology as maybe something that was reshaping society or, or taking something from society. So I, I started making these one-off pieces for exhibitions that were exploring our relationship with technology through how you interact with the object. So to give you some tangible ideas, because I know this sounds super vague and nebulous, um, I made a set... Can't wait for people, you to tell people, because I remember some of the student stuff. I loved it. I loved it. So I made a, a set of mobile phones that each in different ways, um, through the, the way you interacted with them, changed the people's behavior. So there was one phone that delivered a variable level of electric shock to your hand, depending on how loudly the person at the other end of the conversation was speaking. So if, <laughs> it, it was a kind of, it was a provocative, sort of, it was a provocative kind of prop for making us think about how loudly people were all of a sudden speaking in public on their mobile phones. Or there was another one that instead of dialing it by pressing buttons, you had to sort of play it like a musical instrument. And that really focused people on that moment when you go from I'm in a space to I'm in a call. It made you super aware of the environment you were in before you got into a phone call. So these, these were kind of provocative, playful things. They weren't intended for to be real products. They were intended to, to make people think about, you know, what is... What are we losing by having the mobile phone um, in our world? So that was, alongside that, I was also working for doing some commercial practice. I was working for Philips Design for a while. And Philips were super, like Philips Design was the design wing of the sort of big conglomerate multinational Philips Electronics. Um, and they were really concerned with making wearable technologies in the early 2000s and sort of exploring could you incorporate electronic things into jackets or clothing? Um, it was all super clunky even at the time. And and like wearable technology even now is a really, it's a not very satisfactory space. Like people don't like to strap technology to their body. But the one exception to that is the, the watch. And so I was drawn to that partly as a successful piece of wearable technology, but also just as a piece of technology that's persisted. You know, most technology, if it's 10 years old, looks like cavemen used it. It looks, you know, something unimaginable for us that, that we live with these devices. But the wristwatch has that. I, I, I mean, wristwatch is about 120 year history. And then the pocket watch, you could sort of extend it back over several hundred years. And, and they persist because they're not purely about the function of the object. They're, they've evolved this kind of language and sort of dialogue and expression that men particularly can buy into and so they can be expressions of your sort of affluence and taste and style and um and so for that reason i was really interested in them as these really loaded objects like they they signify all of these other aspects of, of a person above and beyond the purely functional bit but they have that purely functional aspect as well like i wouldn't be so interested about i don't know like neckties or some other piece of expressive clothing perhaps that people would wear because I, I like this sort of dynamism of it's a little object that has an, a, a bit of animation in it and it's enclosed in a case and it's 
you know, it, it lends itself to being made into a little miniature artwork just from the form. Um, Absolutely. So I made a set of one-off watches for another exhibition that they, they express different aspects of the person over and above sort of status or taste or affluence. So, for example, one had a built-in lie detector. So every time you lied, your watch would flash up and kind of betray you. But this was this would be a way, you know, it, it was it was expressing something more fundamental about the person than how rich they were. It was expressing how truthful they were. Um, and but another of the watches alternated the time, so it was a little LCD display, and um, to make the watch face, it alternated telling you what the time was with the statement "Remember, you will die." Um, and it was a it was supposed to be more of a so rather than the, every time you look at the watch, you feel kind of pumped up and puffed up about how great you're doing it made you a bit more humble and a bit more sort of reflective perhaps um so there there was this one-off series of watches that they were shown in exhibition it was modestly successful everyone thought they were kind of interesting but they weren't I, i i thought at that time the watch is such a tangible, like physical object. Like it needs, it, it's not something you go into a museum and look at behind a glass case. I mean, I know probably the people listening to this podcast are the kind of people who would go to a museum and look at a watch through a glass case. But most people, you know, it's a it's a thing to wear, to to have physically kind of to interact with. Um, and I was thinking, well, I, I was kind of struck with every time you go to a, like a market, like an outdoor market in any town, there's always a stall selling watches and they but what's weird about it is they're always trying to sell uh they're very inexpensive the watches but they're trying to pretend that they're very expensive watches you know they're they're um aping like jacob and co or like various like odd brands that they pick to copy um but i thought maybe there's something interesting with this inexpensive manufacture but coupled with interesting design so that was really my starting point and and the the years when I was starting to think about making watches, I was looking for ways to make my creative practice more sustainable. Like I'd graduated sort of five years previously. I was doing some commercial work, but still making these sort of projects almost as a hobby on the side for exhibitions and things. And I kind of wanted right. to, to just be making the, the fun stuff and, and not having to, yeah, like scrabble around for like commercial work alongside it. Also my, portfolio was becoming more and more skewed towards these strange slightly dystopian objects so the opportunities I was getting would become more and more limited like really the way I could have made it work was if I'd gone into academia then I could have you know uh, alongside academic teaching work I could have had a sort of creative practice on the side but I, I did some teaching and I didn't really I love it. I could see you doing that yeah. Yeah I mean it's like friends of mine went in went that route and and i have huge respect for them it just it wasn't really um something for me so i thought okay why don't i try and produce some watches i had no background in watches like i didn't grow up on my grandfather's knee while we disassembled old mechanical watches (laughs) the trope exactly like I, i i really i don't i don't can't tap into any of that background but so what i did was i just googled watch factories and started you know mailing the ones that i could find just start mailing them saying I'm a designer from London. I'd like to make a small run of watches. What's the minimum order that I can make? Um, I, I knew that I wanted to print on transparent discs. It's something that I'd seen on children's watches and also the Chromacron watch. Do you know it from Tian Harlan? Chromacron that changed colors? Mm, it's, uh, it's got a sort of Pac-Man shaped disc 
on the oh and it and the discs moves and it kind of changes yeah yeah so funnily enough that was the watch that I actually wore at the time so I knew that and what I liked on that I like I had one from like a quartz one from the 80s um and it was it was printed on a transparent disc rather than like a metal hand and I thought okay that's really interesting because if you can print on a disc you don't have to worry about having a continuous sort of metal piece and you know all the sort of complexities or, or I guess all the restrictions of if it's if you've got to make the hands out of metal they've got to be a certain size and thickness and stuff whereas if you're printing you know it can be uh, whatever you want so many of these factories saying I want to print transparent discs I want to make a small run of watches I didn't actually have the designs at that time um, but quite quickly there was only one factory that was getting back to me and the, they basically set out that okay, the minimum order is 500 watches. That's really 500 cases. And they said, fine, you can design your own case, which was something that I wanted to do. Um, and they said, within the 500, you can make as many variations as you want, as long as you pay the, the sort of setup charges for each design. So, you know, I, I, I sort of bridged the fine art background that I had and thought, what I'll do is five 100-piece editions. They could engrave a serial number on the back. So it's a short step from serial number to edition number so they could all be numbered like from one to 100 these these five designs um and so one of them was a, a very direct like link to the to pre-series i would call it so it had the hour hand that reads remember and the minute hand you will die others though were just more kind of explorations of just different things but all with this idea of the watch sort of as a as, as a vehicle for expressing something different like trying to to be a bit playful with it. Um, so in, well, July 2007, because I'd read this uh, side anecdote, but, but I'd read that Nintendo, the video game company, always picked auspicious numerical dates for releasing important products. And it was 2007 when I was, I knew the watches would be ready and I, 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 they would be ready sort of late spring. So I thought, well, why don't I hold off and wait for 7707? because that's super auspicious sounding. Um, so it, it's also then easy for us to remember the company anniversary is 7-7. Um, so yeah, so I I released the watches, five 100-piece editions. I had some small like mailing lists from the exhibitions that I'd done and stuff. Um, and somehow they, they kind of found an audience. And I have to say, like at this point, I thought the watches would be something that I'd do in 2007, 2008. I'd do something completely different. Like the watches were, were one sort of vehicle for, for me making a kind of creative product that would support my practice. Um, so five designs released. What happened in about, I think about six weeks, the Remember You Will Die watch sold out. I thought, great, maybe now people can start ordering some of the, some of the other designs that I had that hadn't been selling quite strongly. But they didn't. They just kept emailing saying, uh, when are you going to make more Remember Your Die Watches? Because that's the one that I really want. And I thought, well, it was a limited edition, but there's nothing to stop me reissuing it and calling that the permanent collection. It's all like fiction. You know, it's five designs and then one of them is reissued. Right, um, right, right. But, but it, it kind of, it, like it gave a sort of narrative and a, a structure that was coherent, I guess. Um, and in a funny, like quite accidental way, I've, I'd stumbled into the business model that we still have now. So each design that we do is released in a numbered edition. Like now they're still 100 piece. There was a while where we did smaller numbers, but just because we were not so experienced with the printing and stuff. Um, and 
if they're popular enough, which we, which is a kind of nebulous term, but we would gauge that on how many people email us asking after an edition is sold out or how quickly it sells out. If it's popular enough, then we update the design a bit and reissue it and that enters the permanent collection. If it's not, then it only exists as the limited edition. And what's really nice about that is that it allows us to be super experimental with the designs because we never get too hung up on, you know, if you have to order 20,000 pieces of something, then for sure you've got to make sure it sells because you can't be left with 19,980. Like, you know, whereas for us, if an edition doesn't sell, like even worst case scenario, we've only committed 100 you know, the components for 100 watches, it's not a, a huge financial outlay. And so, yeah, we're in the really nice position where we never have to sort of second guess whether it will sell. We just try to make the best right. expression of a design that we can. Well, congratulations for answering most of my question, like, really well. That was great. <laughs> um, I, I, I don't know if you know, but I started a blog to watch in September of 2007. Oh, so really? just oh, very, very near after you did. So we... We got into the space sort of roughly the same time, and I, I think what you what you there's there's so much to unpack about what you said that I'd like to talk about. I mean, look in general, I like to have people on this show who entered watch design um, from different backgrounds because, as you basically pointed out, like every everyone today who is a watch designer came from different backgrounds, and it's hmm. been so diverse from music to architecture, uh, fine arts of yourself, um, and I like to sort of like deconstruct the pathway to becoming a sex, successful watch designer and explain to people that <clears throat> you have to be a polymath. There's mm. no one out there who's a really major watch designer who's like, well, I went to design school and here I am designing amazing watches. Mm. No, they came to it from a, a bunch of different perspectives and appreciations. So watches require more than sort of a linear path. Also, you know, with the Remember You Will Die watch, which I will go into a little bit later more, mm. you, you stumbled upon... Um, uh, some, uh, you know, like a, a product success, you know, not every designer reaches this phase, you know, sometimes they have a great idea, they never make it, but it's always accidental, right? You really never know what it's going to be, but you make something that just happens to be popular enough that you can just make money, keep making them maybe mm -hmm. variations here and there, but like you found, uh, you know, sort of like a gold vein, so to say, and you can just sort of keep mining it, right? You can do other mm -hmm. stuff as well, or you can just hyper-focus on mining it, but you were lucky enough to find that, that vein of, of, you know, mineable gold and use that as a springboard to build an entire business around. And that is, um, that is luck. Of course, it re requires mm -hmm. hard work, but I just, um, you know, would, would you agree that that's sort of a lot of what it is? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. I, and I, I think you can't anticipate that. Like, of course, we would all like to, I would like every watch that we designed to, you know, be super successful and we sell loads of them and they're really popular and they really resonate with people. But I think it is very hit and miss, miss that. And you, like on the face of it, a watch that says, remember, you'll die is a very uncommercial proposition. Like it, it doesn't sound like the kind of thing that would sell very strongly. Um, but funny enough, I think that's, that's why it does sell well, because it's surprising. And actually to find a product that surprises you is relatively rare today. And especially as a watch, like I was saying, the watch industry is so conservative. So to see a watch that is not in, you know, is not from that framework is, is kind of exciting. People, yeah, engage okay. with it. Um, Wrap your mind around this. You're a very philosophical guy, so I think you'll appreciate this. The instances where an artist designs something to his or her standards that ends up becoming commercially successful is quite rare. Hmm. Most of the time when there's a big success, 
it's an object that is subpar to the standards of the person creating it. Not maybe subpar, but not what they would do, like for another taste. So you're right, with the Remember You Will Die watch, which literally has hands that in the tradition of the memento mori uh, says, Remember You Will Die, is quite distasteful to some people, but at the same time, it's quite tasteful to others. And if you're dist- if it's, it's distasteful to you, it's difficult to recognize that there's this entire other population out there that's super into it. So you made something which you were trying to shock people with, I'm guessing, but in reality, it was very appealing to people. And you're like, oh, that's curious. Like, is that sort of what happened? I mean, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Like, it, I, I guess, so I alluded to the electric shock in the mobile phones that we made. I made quite a number of artworks that dealt with electric shocks or pain. Oh, yeah. in there some was a level. watch, wasn't there? Uh, there was a and there was a watch that gave you electric shocks. Yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> I um, remember the video. Um, yeah, like I I was quite interested in that. I mean, I I just want to talk a little bit about. There was a piece I made that was called an invisible force, and this was this sort of wooden desk that I laser cut a grid of. Um, sort of physical pixels into the top surface that they could sort of jiggle up and down and you could read text on them. And the the framework for, or the, the kind of the, the thing that you did with that invisible force was you had this pack of question cards that had different, um, like different fortune telling questions on that you'd put into a metal slot on the side of the table and then you had to press it down and keep your hand on it and the answer would gradually be revealed in these, these sort of physical pixels. But the metal plate under your hand got hotter and hotter as the answer was revealed. And it was a a sort of provocative way of of making people think about, I I guess on the one hand, how silly it is to be investing any meaning into what you know is clearly a a piece of fiction. Like no one knows your future. It's it's not possible. Um, But what what was interesting for me was when that piece was exhibited, rather than people pulling their hand away and being like, oh, it's stupid it's got so high you know i reflect on why i'm asking these questions what happened was people invested much more belief in the the answer because they'd endured this level of pain to see it and actually the the interaction of going there and like enduring the pain is sort of enriched their, their belief in the whole setup so in, in a way it was completely unsuccessful in the terms that i'd planned that desk but I guess what I learned was that actually if you put barriers in people's way or you make something more complicated or or repulsive on some level, actually that draws people in. People are, you know, we all know we're going to die, but we're all scared of it. You know, that, that <laughs> you know, that it taps into quite deep emotion and that... Um, yeah, but it's that, ultimately that hard people. to relate. It's hard to relate, right? If you don't see that as a positive thing, which, yeah, I accept a lot of people don't, you know, that that reminder that you should make the most of your time on Earth, if you don't see that as a positive thing, then, yeah, it's unimaginable why anyone would wear it. But for the people who, who do respond well, you know, it's a, it is a positive message. It's a, a seize the day, you know. Well, I mean, it's it's an age-old thing, This the concept of memento mori. Mm. There's all these different ways where things have said literally in one way or another, remember you will die, the notion of seize the day, 
uh, is an extension of that sort of more optimistic thing, you know, like, you know, make the most of every day because, you you know, there's just, there's a, we have a lot of variations on the same term in society. You're quite right. And like, there's a whole history of things like mourning jewelry or like even what we've considered quite macabre things where jewelry was woven from dead people's hair and things, or, you know, like the, the locket with the hair of a dead person in that now we would view as, I don't, yeah, sort of semi-distasteful, but I think was was quite comforting for the people, the sort of Victorians who who had, you know, who who wanted to keep that part of the person with them, and and yeah, it, I think everything is sort of cyclical, and I think yeah, with hindsight, you can you can look and say, well, there's this long history of memento mori, and people don't fundamentally change, you know, no, they don't. We, so so it it appealed to people in this Victorian period. It appeals to people today in a slightly different form. But, I mean, you can see that that sort of iconography of skulls and stuff is everywhere. Like, people are fascinated with death and, you know, it, it is the, the tragedy of human, you know, the human nature that we know we're going to die. Well, we look, we look quite down upon it, you know, com- historically speaking. I mean, let, let's, let's be honest. There was a long period of human history where a lot of people genuinely believe that, you know, there was a whole other phase of life. And mm. uh, when you die, you're going to be reunited with people. So it's good to remember them and that they see what you're doing. And, and th- this, mm. was a, this was a predominant belief. This was a legitimate thing that didn't have, you know, uh, it was, science was so nascent. Anything was believable at that mm. point. True. Yeah, you're quite right. Yeah. So, you know, the, the idea, like, remember you will die. Today it sounds horrifying and tragic. Maybe then it's like suffering will be over eventually. True. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And I, I don't know, obviously, how many people who buy the watch, maybe they all have quite strong religious beliefs. And, and for them it is, ah, eventually this will all be over. So no matter how bad it is at the moment, at least you have that to look forward but, to. But it doesn't matter. The idea is you you stumbled upon something that is commercially successful in a way that you can repeat. Mm-hmm. You know, there's these mm-hmm. artists that find something and then they do it over and over and over again because people are buying it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Picasso was someone that learned how to do that in different phases. He just made a bunch of stuff and then moved on to something completely different. And people just, you know, we bought it. He was a little special. But, you know, you it, 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 some some artists would be like, oh, oh, that's selling out. No, that's living, right? And you still do all this other little fun stuff on the side. Um, but, Mike, I have a curiosity. Where in your background did you sort of develop being a social scientist in addition to being, you know, a classicist, an artist, and a historian? I mean, that was sort of the interaction design course because that was a lot about... So one of the fundamental reasons they set it up was... Um, that what happens in technology companies is engineers end up leading them. And engineers' way of developing technology is all to do with what is technically possible. I mean, this is still true now. Like the people at Google are engineers. And you can see that because they released Google Glasses because they're like, we can make tiny little displays that you can project on your retina. No one wants that. <laughs> but like they, they want it because... They know technically it's, it's possible. So Interaction Design was set up with this idea that actually what a lot of these companies would benefit from is it's not only a sort of creative design input, but a kind of understanding of the social context and the social space that these technologies exist in. So it, it was really from there. And I do find that fascinating. Yeah, the, you know, if you look around the object at how it exists in the world rather than looking at the object itself. 
Does that make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. So I'm just trying to get a little bit of a background here because, I mean, there's a lot of themes that I see. Like, I see you as someone that grew up watching Monty Python. I was like, you know what? I can be inspired by some of the silliness and and bring it into something more serious. Oh, of course, yeah. And, like, I mean, so when I tell people I did sculpture as an undergraduate, I think their perception is that I carved stone or molded clay or things like that. In reality, we made, like, funny things that that made us laugh. Like, it, it... like humor humor is so closely linked to surprise and surprise is quite closely linked to you know we want to see something new that that idea of newness so it's it's kind of a short step from creating something new to creating something amusing and i i guess my interest is always like monty python is really interesting because some of the comedy is quite dark in there is quite i think there's a really nice sketch oh, yeah. where there's a really nice sketch of that i like of the there's some people who have commissioned some architects to design a shopping center for them but the architects mainly design abattoirs so what they dis- describe they're making is you know they describe the shoppers arriving and then they <laughs> proceed down the passage to where the rotating knives are and then the blood buckets and, and you know all the the people in the room are looking horrified but you know it's that that really um it's got an edge to it the comedy it's not it's not super gentle have you visited the gift store for watch lovers it's called the blog to watch store and we carry art apparel and accessories for today's timepiece enthusiasts you can buy your wristwatches elsewhere but at the blog to watch store you can celebrate your watch collecting hobby with high quality original products the Blog to Watch store features a line of t-shirts inspired by iconic timepieces and designed by the collecting experts at A Blog to Watch. We also carry some incredible art that will grate on your walls, letting everyone know about your watch collecting enthusiasm. The bespoke yet affordable products which the Blog to Watch store carries have been designed and curated by the Blog to Watch editorial team. We ship internationally and right now are offering free global FedEx priority shipping on every shirt and watch pouch. We add new products all the time, so be sure to check out store.ablogtowatch.com. That's store.ablogtowatch.com. And your work at times has had an edge to it. I don't think you would do it if you didn't have the ability to put an edge to it. Tell me about that part of yourself. I mean... I, well, I, I guess it is in, encompassing the room of your tie. Like, I, I think that, like, it's shock, but it's, I, mm, I'm trying to think. The, the title of my thesis when I did my master's degree was Complicated Pleasures. And I think, <laughs> so the, there's a, I, did, I wish I'd come up with the phrase, actually. I should acknowledge it. Were you goth it. in high school? No, no, never. I mean, it's kind of, <laughs> But I like. I think the you just like, disappointed so many goth kids. Come sorry. on. Sorry, I mean I was, I was more of a, me- a metal kid to be honest. Like Guns and Roses, that was my okay. Thing. Cool. Um, but like the, a lot of people are happy with simple pleasures, and and that's great for them. I'm really happy for them. But it doesn't really do it for me. I like something with a bit more nuance and a bit more edge. And yeah, complicated pleasures as a phrase was. Uh, it was another designer, um, Anthony Dunn, who came up with that phrase for for an article he wrote, and I I really that really resonated with me because it, like you know, a a fortune telling table that burns your hand is quite a complicated pleasure. It's but it is a pleasure. It's a fun kind of engagement on some level. It's it's not it's a, what do they say? The phrase is a smile in the mind. It's it's not like a laugh out loud amusing thing, but it's a a clever, you know, sort of construct. 
And I think that's what really appeals to me. And that's what appeals to me about the watches. Like, they're surprising and amusing and kind of playful because they're unexpected. And yet that sort of short leap from... I think I think there is a thing that Freud said that um, all laughter is predicated on surprise. So it's why we laugh at people stumbling and falling over because on the face of it, it's not, you know, I mean, it depends on, depends on the context. But, you know, it's, it's funny because it's surprising. Like it's broken the, the, the sort of construct of reality that we have around. Like it's, it's something outside of the expected. Well, you know, it's funny because I, I, I try to deconstruct comedy as well. And I've identified that most comedic things are ironic or absurd but there's that missing element I wasn't thinking about, which was the the surprise. There's an unexpectedness. If it's expected, then and it's ironic. It's not funny. It's the the unexpected. A, com- a comedian who you can anticipate the punchlines just dies on their feet. Like it's not funny at all. You can see where the joke is going. What's really nice is if the comedian appears to lead you down the path, so you're lulled into a sense of I understand where this is going, and then they deviate off. You know, that's that's when it becomes really funny. So let's talk a little bit more about Mr. Jones watches. I mean, mm. one of the things that I always remembered is you're, 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 there's sort of an interesting artistic element to how literal you can be. And I mean, your brand is literally, you know, like Mr. Jones watches. And I think that there's sort of this intellectual barrier that some people aren't able to get over when approaching your brand because they're not sure what to make of it because you are you're thoughtful, but you're also so literal in what you're doing. Do you ever find that some people are just like, they're just intimidated by how real everything you do is? I, I, mean, I don't think anyone's intimidated by it. So, I mean, I'd be surprised. I mean, I guess if they are, they don't come up to me and, and tell me about it. Well, well, um, well, well let, me, let me just explain really quick. It, there is a large portion of the watch collector community who, for whatever reason, Meta doesn't know about you, or given the price points, may not uh, understand or take a, a good look. But there's a um, a snobby prejudice which which can happen in this space, and I think that that's something that precludes some people from looking at some of the wonderful values that you have. You need to look closely. Like if you're if you're used to buying five thousand, ten thousand, fifty thousand dollar watches. You need to you need to approach Mr. Jones watches with a very different mindset to appreciate the value that Crispin's offering. It is there; it's just not the form of gold cases and turbions. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, th- I definitely that's fair. And like, I guess I guess it's one of the things that I mean. There are a number of things that make us unique as a watch company, but one of the things that is unique is the level of in-house production that we do and the price point that we're at. So we do all of the printing and all of the assembly ourselves in-house in our workshops in London. But we're, we, like in a way, we don't really sell our brand on those terms because I think it becomes a mixed message. And I'm, I'm all about keeping our message really clean and really clear. And, you know, we're about interesting design and unusual, unexpected, provocative, funny, you know, things that happen on the watch face. But actually, there is a whole sort of craft element that goes into that. But I think if you start emphasizing the craft element, then people start, the association is with those much higher price point watches. And I think that would actually alienate our sort of core customer base because they think, um, I can't afford it, or it's, you know, it's, it's something that's not for me because I'm not really into that sort of heritage craft world. I, I, I want to mention something really uh, important as well on this exact note. There are other brands who, like Crispin, started out in small batches with clever designs and, and got popular. But 
one of the rare things about your company is you have resisted, I guess, the urge uh, or the tendency to go up market. Almost mm -hmm. every other watch brand that started in this humble state has very quickly increased the average price point. And I, and I, and I think I understand why. It's because if you want to maintain small productions and, and, and live any type of life and hire anyone, you need more margins. Mm -hmm. But you have resisted that tendency, which has predominated the space for the better, I think, because it's important to have brands like yours. And I'm just curious what what allowed you to do that. Um, you're obviously very happy with the size of your company, even though you, you have continued to grow, which is good. But but help talk from your side about why you didn't go down that route that so many others have. And, and again, I applaud you for it. I mean, I okay, on the one hand, the price, like the price has risen, but it's gone from about £80 sterling when we first started to the core is like 195 now. Like, so it has, it has gone up a bit, but partly that early price was dictated by the exchange rate to the US dollar, which was very low when I started and is quite high now. Um, but I don't know, like always from the start, I wanted to be able to sell watches to my peers and I didn't, like my peers are not people who would spend £5,000 on a watch. I think if if you go into that world, then you're, the people you sell to naturally becomes quite limited. And, and that's great if it allows you to do these really creative things that you couldn't do otherwise. But I've never felt that. I've never felt that we're we're really held back by the price point that we we operate to. I feel like actually what a lot of creative people like is the constraint, is those sort of, you know, the constraints to say, we, we can't spend endless amounts of money on this. Like we have to find an interesting solution within the framework that we have. I guess the other thing is most of the people who work for me are quite young. They're early to mid twenties. And I think for them, like they, you know, although it is Mr. Jones watches and I'm the boss and stuff, it is actually quite democratic setup and everyone has an input and it's not like I make a whole bunch of decisions and then tell people to get on with it. You know, we discuss collectively what we're going to do, what's coming up, what direction the company goes in. Um, and, and I think they would all really resist the idea of going up to a very high price point just because it's, it's not their world. It's not the... Sorry, can you hear Stanley barking in the background? Sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, just just to say, you know, they're they're a younger sort of group, and they would really resist going to a higher price point because it's not the world they're in. It's not, you know, they want to show their friends the watches they make and their friends to engage with them and want to buy them. You know, it's it's that kind of um, the world that we're in. So. I never really felt any incentive to go really high price point. Also, as I alluded to before with the limited editions, I think if you go really high price point, you become more conservative because you've invested so much more in, I don't know, your beautiful tourbillon movement and your gold case and stuff. You've got to find a market for that and you can't be left with loads of them. So you become quite conservative. And that, I think that's when you start making stuff that looks like other brands because you're like, well, how how is other people selling at this price point? Okay, that's this is what the watch needs to look like for that price point. And yeah, for us, what we value more than anything is being able to to be creatively free and to to just yeah do strange things that that keep it interesting for us. Do you ever wonder why there aren't more in your space, or alternatively, how does it make you feel 
to hear the statistic I said that you may have not been aware of that there is this tendency to, to quickly jump up and that you're um, a, a very interesting species. I definitely, I always puzzles me i mean it puzzles me even the higher price point watches how little that like how little they want to do creatively or experimentally or but but yeah for sure i'm i i just i'm constantly puzzled that there aren't 50 watch companies at our price point making interesting stuff like if you look at i don't know like clothing brands like you know there's a whole world of small clothing brands who make interesting stuff and then there's a sort of, you know, there's like a pyramid that goes up to the very big companies at the top. But there's a very wide base to the pyramid. I feel like with watches, there is, I mean, there is a reasonably wide base, but mostly doing quite conservative things. I wonder why there aren't more odd, quirky companies like us doing, you know, strange, unusual designs. Now, let's talk about design, actually, because... Hmm. My understanding is that, of course, some of the first watches were yours. And at some point, you made the decision to start commissioning other artists, um, mostly in the UK, maybe in other parts of the world as well, um, to make dials. And, and that's an interesting move that you made. I think it's a great move. But talk a little bit about being an artist and commissioning artwork. Mm -hmm. I mean... Okay, so we're at the 15-year anniversary, and it has been a period of sort of reflection and looking back for the company. Like, most of the time, what we do is all looking forward because we're on the next thing and we're the next watch and the next design we're working on. But, yeah, to, to look back and reflect. And I think the there is a really fundamental shift in the company at the point where I stopped designing all the watches. Because at first, I you know, at first it was just me anyway, but I thought, it's Mr. Jones' watches, therefore I have to design all the watches because it's my creative practice, it's my vision and stuff. And that was great for the first sort of three years. And then by year four, it was starting to become a little bit of a chore. And, you know, I was running out of steam to do that and also manage the the organisation and, and, you know, just manage the, the company. So initially, it was at the point where we started doing some... UK production. So initially when we started printing and assembling watches here, it was really just for sampling. And what what we found quite helpful at that point, or what I certainly found helpful at that point, was to work with people who were outside the company. It was useful because if I designed a watch and I knew what our sort of printing capability was, I would design something that I knew we could print because, you know, I understood the framework. Whereas if I worked with someone outside the company they'd design something and then we'd have to figure out how we could possibly make that. And that was a much better way to, to sort of learn our craft, I guess, than, than just me constantly doing simple monochrome text-based designs that right. were relatively easy to produce. Um, but what also happened at that point was, and, and this was something that I was reflecting on over the last couple of years, is we shifted from, like my interest was really in, these sort of playful, remember you will die, like complicated pleasures, but quite stark sort of statement pieces, if you like. And what we sort of evolved into is a more pictorial um, sort of area. So the watches that we tend to specialise in now are pictorial designs where the time-telling element is integrated into the, the scene that you see. So either with, like we use some jump hour movements, there's a tends to be, you know, a small window where you can read the hour and then there's something that moves on a, a minute disc that, that shows the minutes. Or, you know, if we use like a quartz movement, like a two-hand movement, there's like two elements that, that rotate. Um, 
they make the hour a minute hand. But yeah, for for me, I guess, I guess it wasn't a super easy transition to make because you know I have extensive experience of design education and you know I I'm a creative person. I wanted the designs all to be mine. But equally, I had to recognise at a certain point that I actually wasn't the best person to design the kind of watches that we wanted to make. Um, and yeah, it was a, you know, it was a learning, a growing experience for me to to recognise that my role was changing and that it wasn't about me designing everything. It was much more about me collaborating with, well, it, actually, it's not just me collaborating with the external people. You know, it's like the, the collectively, the the team here collaborating with external people. Um, I do remember when I worked for design consultancies, and probably this phrase is like widely used in other industries, but there was always a phrase that good clients get good work. And I think I think we get good results from the people we collaborate with because I would say almost everyone who works here has been through a fine art education. So there's a, a kind of understanding of how a creative person might approach a design and and it is quite an iterative design process that we go through it's it's almost i would say almost unheard of that a designer would submit something and we go yep that's perfect we're just going to make that it's much more they'll submit a bunch of sketches these are the kind of areas i was thinking of what do you think of that we'll feed back quite detailed stuff they'll work up a couple of them in a bit more detail we'll say maybe this and you change this and that it's a very sort of constructive process where we're each building and sort of feeding back and and building um on on the the various designs until we get to the point where we're both happy you know the excellent artists and us in in the company we're both happy with what where we've ended up yeah i mean like i really want to talk about this because i think that there's a lot to learn for other companies here um first of all you're talking about Hiring people whose craft you understand. Very often, mm-hmm. people hire people to do a craft that they don't understand at all, whether it's a manufacturing thing or design thing. But because you understand the mindset uh, to degree of the person you're hiring, you know how to approach the business relationship. You know how to give them feedback. You know how to give them positive feedback, not just negative feedback. Mm. And you probably offer them a lot less of a stressful experience. I mean, most luxury watch companies, when they do a quote unquote collaboration, the artist, uh, who I speak to very often through interview or just knowing them, isn't super happy about it. They have all kinds of complaints um, <laughs> from being treated unfairly to feeling as though their you know their their creativity was stifled to matters with money, uh, corporate bureaucracy, things like that. I think we all agree that with the budgets that some of these big brands have, they could be coming out with some amazing, wonderful artistic things. And that they don't is often because two different cultures clash. And in Crispin's special situation, you you not only understood the mindset, but you had you had the wisdom to put your ego to the side. There are many brands out there that there's sort of a lead creative di- director or designer who, you know, it's 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 all about them. It's all about mm-hmm. them for as long as they can hold that position. And that is silly because you're just you're 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 making it so much harder on one person and you're you're preventing a, a robustness and there's so much good that can come out of it. And again, I've I've seen from the side that you've been successful at, that you've taught me a few new things now that we're chatting about it. But I, I, I hope you will allow me to tell other people, you know, try to try to be inspired by what Crispin is doing here. I mean, I like 
all of the things you're describing just sound like really bad practice on those other companies' part. Like, you know, you know, I, I don't feel like I don't feel like we have any particular insight or you know special knowledge. Like, we just treat them with respect and you know, and and try to try to make the best version of their design that we can. I mean, not every collaboration is successful either. You know, it's, sometimes it is difficult. Or, I, yeah, I don't, I, I'm trying to think what. What goes wrong with collaborations? Sometimes they're a bit rushed. Like we have over the years tried to be, like at one point we tried to be really hard on our schedule of, we release one watch per month. We skip November, December because it's too close to Christmas and we skip January because too close after. But apart from that, we're there, like each month we're doing a new design. And that sort of became a rod for our own backs because on the one hand, it's good to have deadlines. It's good to have that time frame that everyone's working towards but on the other if the design's not ready it's just stupid because you're rushing out something that no one's going to be that happy with like you're not that happy with it the artist isn't the people who want to buy it are going to be not that happy with it um so i think we've become much better at allowing each design to take the time it takes so we would never like when i would approach someone to work with we'd never say okay this is the deadline for this watch that you're going to work on we'd say it will take as long as it will take. Maybe it takes, I, I guess the shortest would be about six weeks, but that would be very rare. And most of the designs take months, but not months of constantly working on it. They take a bit of sort of kickoff time from the, the designer, the artist, to work up some initial ideas, then a bit of time for us to feed back, then probably a bit of gap, and then the artist works on it a bit more. So it's quite a, yeah, it's quite an organic process. And, and it, yeah, I, I always. But you have that. to do the process. If you skip mm. the process, then you don't get the results. For, for sure, I, I just feel like th- there's always a fine line between deadlines and allowing stuff to take the time it takes. Like you can't, you can't take your foot off the pedal too much because it can't just drift. It can't be that it's taking a year to do a design. Like if it's taking that long, probably there's something fundamentally wrong. Like you, it, and and for some designs, we have, you know, I, th- I think we've learned that as well over time that. Not every collaboration actually ends in a watch. Like sometimes, for whatever reason, for like, for us, for the designer, for just the way it's going, it's just not working. And I think being able to recognize that is one of the, the lessons that we learned and sort of manage that because that's quite a hard conversation to have with a designer to say, hmm, this thing that you've been working on for ages is not really working. And when we're thinking either we go back to square one and start again, if there's enough enthusiasm, let's let's keep it going because we still want to get something out of it. Equally, if not, maybe we'll just walk away and it didn't work this time. Maybe in a year's time, we can pick it up, do something new. So I think it's that being able to be honest with yourself and the the situation and not just be too fixated on, we've got to get something out of this because we've invested loads of time in it and we've got a deadline and, you know. Well, you're you're talking like a person that runs a business that they like and you want everyone else that works there to like it. But again, most of the companies in the space are corporate owned, have remote stakeholders, investors. Uh, it's cutthroat out there. Um, mm. Not a lot of people have fun at watch brands. Some people have a great time, but there's a lot of not fun happening and that's reflected in some of the cultures there. You know, enough of the time they make beautiful products, so it's, it, it all seems to be worth it. But I mean, look at look at some of the dollar amounts that are at stake. Some some of the price points, some of the margins. I mean, mm. you know, most of the people in the watch industry are relatively humble in their pay. 
but there are a small number of people that are taking huge profits. So it's a very complicated uh, type of set of politics that really revolves around financial people making decisions and trying to get very large revenues uh, so that they can satisfy shareholders. Uh, that is a completely different universe than what you do, even though you're technically in the same industry. I mean, I think that would be like a horrible failure if the company ended up in those terms. Like, you know, yeah, you're absolutely right. I love coming to work and I hope, I like to think that also the other people who work with me love coming to work and I think they do genuinely. Um, but yeah, the idea that you would be so dictated to by financial constraints or things like that, yeah, yeah. it must be horrible. I feel sad if you say like most people who work in watching through that fun. That's that's tragic. Well, again, you know, it, it, it just sort of comes with a luxury territory. And look, I'm not I'm not trying to say negative things about it. I just like to show everyone that there's another side, hmm. but that your chemistry is rare. What happened to you is fortunate and fantastic for you, and you found a great niche, hmm. but it is not a, it's not the common story. Hmm. Um, and I want you to continue doing what you're doing, continue to hire artists uh, and give them great work. And, 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 and what you're doing is you're basically taking the wristwatch and you're making a very small palette for art. And you're giving people an outlet to sell a, a different kind of composition that is, I mean, yes, it's a watch. Yes, it sells the time. But you're wearing, it's it's, it's a sort of functional art. And, and the history in time and clocks and things like that of this sort of like art being part of it goes back long, long time ago where with big clocks, the whole system of the little figurines and things like that was just what do you do with some of the extra power of the moving gears? And they made these automatons and these fantastic animations and things like that or people bought whimsical clocks for their homes and things mm. like that. They weren't all luxury objects. They were quite pedestrian much of the much of the time, you know, starting probably in the Victorian era. But I, I think that you are you are creating a modern manifestation of a very age-old uh, type of consumer demand. It's hard to get into. You have to have a lot of – there's no business model. Right? You could never write a business model be like, okay, here's my 10-year plan. Like never would work. <laughs> no. Never no. would work. And, and I, I like to show you as an example of go into things without expectations. Take risks. Mm. If you're trying to figure out how much money you're going to make tomorrow, today, you've already lost. Like – you went in this just wanting to make something cool, and mm -hmm. and you put in effort. You didn't you didn't kill yourself doing it, but you just you just did the work. But you didn't spend like eight years in you know uh, convincing investor that this is a great use of their money. Like if you had to do that, none of this ever would have gotten off the ground. No, exactly, and you couldn't take the kind of creative risks, and yeah, you couldn't take a chance. You would have to have everything so nailed down and so planned and market tested and yeah, business planned and all of that. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. that's not my world at all. That's horrible. No, I mean, so here's here's someone, and I'm just trying to show the world, you know, Crispin Jones has taken um, the ability to basically do whatever he wants with a watch. He doesn't have to charge, you know, $50,000 for it. Um, and he's having a lot of fun, and there's a lot of variety. And yes, he doesn't have, you know, complicated mechanical, like, mechanisms going on. But, you know, that, that, that doesn't – that isn't interesting for the vast majority of the population – you know, you're 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 offering incredible personality to wear on the wrist. It's it's as we know, the watch is the ultimate fashion accessory for man or woman. Mm -hmm. That sounds like an excellent summation of us as a company. Yeah. yeah see, yeah, you can you can you can use some of that. We'll okay, use so that, yeah. 
You said you were doing a lot of, you know, personal reflection and things like that. Hmm. Now that you are a different person than you were 15 years ago, what is the next 15 years of the company going to look like? I mean, we're at a place in the world where everyone's thinking about how tomorrow is going to be different than today. How is your tomorrow going to be different than your today? I mean, so the current, like, one of the things that we're trying to achieve is to get all of the production under one roof. Currently, we have two separate workshops in South London. They're separated by about three miles, so it's not really close enough that you can pop between them. It's a really practical thing, but we're a really small company. You know, there's 18 employees plus me. Like, we're really small, but we're split across these different sites. Um, so to bring all of that under one roof is something that we've been, we were trying to work towards with, actually, where I'm speaking from you, I'm speaking from to you now. Um, but it was it was an old shop that we renovated and turned into a workshop. But by the time it, the renovation was complete, we'd actually taken on more staff and it was not big enough for us, um, which was a frustration. But, you know, it's just the slowness of building work and stuff. Um, but yeah, so that's that's a really practical part of what we're aiming for in the next 15 years. Um, I guess, although you said we don't do fancy mechanical things, one of the things that we're looking at and that we're really interested in is, you know, using kind of different modules to change the time display. So I would really love to do like a brass on layer type display, you know, looking at the historical pocket watches and, and clocks indeed, where you've got the two linear um, so by retrograde um, hands. Right, right, right. But uh, we, we really like that because we think that's got real scope for making the kind of pictorial, like character-based designs that we like so much. Um, I think it could be really interesting. So, yeah, working a bit on that, um, I don't know, yeah, just keeping our sort of, I guess keeping our, our momentum going. Like it, I said, we try to do the one design every month, which indeed we, we still do. Um, that's quite challenging. Like that requires quite a lot of work and it needs quite a lot of energy to keep that that in process. And I think, yeah, we just aim to kind of keep that going as much as we can but it, and keep increasing the quality and keep increasing the the sort of charm of, of the watches that we, we actually release. So not being satisfied with something just because we have a deadline or not being satisfied with something just because we spent ages on it already, really keeping going until everyone is is really delighted and excited about it. That's fantastic. Getting more efficient with the business, bringing more things in-house, being able to control not only costs, but it, timelines and being able to do more because you can control it. That is, uh, that's mm. that's exactly where, what you should be doing. I think there's a lot of talk about you know watchmaking in England actually, um, and not a lot of people I think even know that you are you know you're 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 building right there. Not everything, of course, is in in, in England, but you're mm. you're doing assembly and there's a lot of things going on there. So I think that's fantastic, uh, Crispin. We're about out of time. Where can people find you, learn more about you, and 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 check out your products? Sure thing. So, I mean, mrjoneswatches.com, obviously, for the is the core website. Um, we are on all forms of social media in some variation of Mr. Jones Watches, at Mr. Jones Watches. Um, we're quite easy to track down on it. We, we put a lot of effort into our social media presence and, and really communicating the brand through that. So definitely our Instagram and our TikTok channels are the two main places, I would say, for people to, to really get to know us. Thank you so much. Um, this has been the Superlative Podcast. My guest has been Crispin Jones of Mr. Jones Watches. Crispin, thank you so much. Thank you, Ariel. 
Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at blog2watch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit ablogtowatch.com. <laughs>